Fantastic. As you settle back in, I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. And your study sheet, I know, will be a help to you as we move through our text this morning. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at an entire chapter from the Bible and uh, 46 verses. Uh, I'll explain to you a bit about how that's going to happen in a minute or two, but uh, the, the, the structure of the chapter is a key to how we're going to make this happen. Uh, the, the chapter itself begins with a parable, a story with a point, and then it's followed up by four additional paragraphs, all of which are built on that first big section. So sometimes these are chopped up and delivered in a variety of sermons, but today I want to focus on the unity of this chapter. I think it's really profound how it all hangs together. Now, I, I brought along to help us get, get going here um, one of my children's books, not one of my, the books of my children, but one of my children's books. This is King Leonard's Celebration. Uh, we've used it around here a number of times, and King Leonard's Celebration is a joyful, child-centered telling of the similar story from Matthew 22 that is told in Luke 14, okay? Similar but not the same, which we'll talk about for a moment. But in this book, King Leonard Celebration, of course, King Leonard is a, is a wonderful, um, wonderful and gracious lion, which kind of works when you're telling a story that relates to Jesus. But it's, he's, a, he's a generous lion who's inviting all of his friends to a party. And my goodness, that story is told. But I, I, I highlight one element uh, because they're trying to capture joy. And, and what a wonderful and gracious opportunity this is. And so the highlight of the banquet, are you ready? It's the presentation of the royal ice cream. So I love this book because it fits my personality. How else do you spell party? Well, 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 you've got royal ice cream, and so there you go. Well, more could be said about that, but I won't. But Luke 14 and Matthew 22 tell similar but different stories, and they're placed at different spots in the life of Jesus. Now, a couple things about how you read and understand the Bible. You've heard me say similar things on this before, but I, I think it's important to repeat. Jesus, as an itinerant storyteller, often told similar things more than once, as any good preacher today. You have one or two good stories. That's all you have. And so in a given setting, you might tell it, but you give a little bit of a spin for the current audience. I think that's what's going on here because the story in Luke 14 and this book and telling of it is really about more like the royal ice cream and, and it's, it's full of smiles and happiness. Well, that's good. But as you come to Matthew 22, you'll find similar elements, but this story has a, let's just say a very sharp point to it. And it doesn't have quite the ice cream and not quite the giggles and snuggles that Luke 14 does. So Jesus telling, uh, using a similar structure in a different setting, very, we'll talk about that setting, why it's so different. Why does he come with a sharper point? It's sobering. It's intended to be. But one of the elements I just want to introduce to your mind as we prepare to step in here, um, in both of these accounts, both of these stories, a great king invites people to a banquet, invites, summons, yea, verily, commands 
And in both, both stories, the people who are so invited decline. Now, sometimes uh, I realize we who live very busy lives, uh, things get crowded out. The best gets crowded out by the goodness. And we can talk about that, and I invite you to, do, to think about that a little later. But I also believe this, and this is something I'd like you to think about throughout the morning. At the heart of why these people are too busy isn't just a busy calendar. It's a low regard for the one issuing the invitation and the command. Viewing the command from heaven as just another opportunity, another option. A low regard for the king of kings. Let that not be said of us. So let's come to God's word then. I want to pray for us and then we'll jump on this. We've got a number of things to move through. Um, it's, a, it's a fun story in, in a sense and yet very sobering. But pray with me, please. Father, we come to your word as always so aware that in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, here are the words of the living God. And so we, we, we stop, we pause rightly to say, Spirit of God, help us, help me. Uh, together in this this marvelous act as a church family of opening scripture together to rightly honor you as our God, to hear the story of the text, to hear its point, and then to, to think about it for our own lives and to apply it in obedience going forward. Help us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at your study sheet, I want you to get some idea of how we're going to go about this. Uh, in my little introductory paragraph, I mentioned it's kind of like a boxing match. So there's the main story, and then I call it round one, round two, round three, round four. <laughs> it's kind of like a four-round boxing match. And they, they all flow out of the parable that begins. So we're going to read that together and then be prepared for all the action that comes. And I'll show you how I think it fits together. But here then, the word of God, Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. We read this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My, my oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king went in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in, get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, do you see the sharp point? Yeah, this isn't quite smiles and ice cream at this point, is it? 
No, this, this text, yes, it has a point, as a parable does. It has a sharp point for the specific audience who is listening. Now, you remember, as we've talked about the Gospel of Matthew and moving through it, that Matthew spends the first big chunk of, of his book on the whole first part of Jesus' life beginning at his birth. But the narrative slows dramatically for the last week of Jesus' life. And as you come to chapter 22, this is, some have suggested this is probably Tuesday of Passion Week, Friday, the day that he would be crucified. But here he is surrounded by uh, antagonists. And the, the temperature is rising. They're plotting against him. There's an undercurrent of discontent and hatred. And so no wonder Jesus would sharpen the point and have something very, very specific to say to that audience. Now, I want to talk specifically about the parable a bit and, and um, just a word about parables. Um, we make multiple mistakes in our reading parables, okay? Uh, a parable is a story with a point. Many would typically say that, and follow my minis and mosts, okay? They're significant. Many writers would say that most parables have a singular point. And sometimes we make mistakes by over-applying the details. You know, people have done this through the years and tried to make this mean that and this mean that. And we can err greatly in doing this, over-applying, overthinking what's there. Now, sometimes we might do the opposite. Sometimes there's greater correspondence. I think uh, this would be a parable like that. I think the parable of the prodigal son is similar to that. Well, there are, there are, there's more than one area of correspondence by the intent of the storyteller, in this case, Jesus. So as I have in this opening paragraph on your study sheet, just a few areas of correspondence that I think fit what, what Jesus is trying to teach here. So I believe by correspondence, God is the king, Messiah Jesus telling the story is the son in the, in the parable. The servants are the prophets, I would say all the way through John the Baptist. And the wedding feast is the kingdom to which Jesus has been inviting people since he showed up and began as a preacher. The Old Testament speaks of that the, the, the kingdom uh, period. We've spoken about that in past uh, sermons on Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom. Well, here he is again, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So not specifically, are you ready? Not specifically heaven, but kingdom of heaven. And uh, wow, I could spell that out a little more for you, but um, eschatology, I want to focus in here on this thing today. I think the kingdom period uh, is a real time coming up. Now, Parable I have here, hint, the parable continues the emphasis on the nations. It really does, and we'll see that in verses 9 and 10 in particular, uh, though I may not call it out at that point. So what's going on in this little story? Gracious king, party for his son. You guys all thought, we thought, that save the dates were modern inventions spurred on by, by Pinterest. Guess what? Save the dates have been going on for a long, long period, long, long time. Hundreds of years, in fact. And it was part of the culture back in, not specifically like, you know, come May 5th to my two-year-old's party, but the, my, my son is getting married. There's going to be a wedding feast. Brace yourself. And the intent from a great king is that all of his subjects would say, wow, oy vey, there's going to be a wonderful wedding feast, and this king is going to throw a party like you wouldn't believe, so when the time is right, I'm going. That's the anticipation, okay? So that's why it's so jarring when the official summons is issued, 
sent to those who had been invited previously. Come, it's time. Expectation, drop what's coming. Martha, Martha, get the kids, and off you go. That's the idea. But no, it's supposed to be jarring. Those who were invited won't come, verse 3. It's supposed to catch your breath. All the original listeners should have got the point, would have gotten the point in the story, like, oh my goodness, what an egregious um, breach of of, uh, social propriety. You don't do that. They won't come. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen now? Well, this, this king says next, he sends other servants saying, tell them, it's, you know what? It's almost like he begs. Oh, look, I sent you to save the date. Now I've told you to come, sent you the summons. I mean, what, what's, what's, where's the disconnect? I'm going to send yet more servants. I'm going to invite you again. And the point of the story is the patience, the graciousness of the one making the offer. I didn't just offer you once. I offered you again. I offered again. And you still stiff-armed the gracious king. All the original readers would have, got, would have gotten this. What a gracious, patient sovereign this is. And what rude, ungrateful subjects to repeatedly say no to this wonderful offer. Why would you say no? Well, these other servants said, the king, verse four, I've prepared, look, he's been explaining the benefits of the kingdom. Look, the the, the party, look, look, I've got this dinner. I've killed these wonderful animals. You're going to have short ribs and big ribs and beef ribs. And it's going to be wonderful. Come, you can, I can just imagine it smells like Tony Roma's down the block. Everything is ready. Come to the, come, come, come. Gracious invitation. Now, you've heard me say before in preaching that in the gospel we have both an invitation, we like invitations, and we have commands. That is, the gospel is both, is what I'm saying. Often in our evangelical world, we focus more on giving invitations. It seems to fit, you know, our revivalistic heritage. I understand, I get it. But honestly, there's about half the text in the New Testament. If we were going to do it that way, we wouldn't issue invitations at all. We would give commands. We don't like commands, do we? Doesn't that ruffle something deep within you to be commanded? Yes. Well, when it comes from God, listen, that thing that's a pushback. Well, think about sin nature at that point. You're being commanded to repent You're being commanded to repent and believe the gospel. And maybe, in fact, some of you, I hope many of you have responded to that invitation. Command. Maybe some of you have not. Uh, You hear it as an invitation, but hear it also as a command from heaven. Repent and believe the gospel. Thus saith the Lord. So to decline that is not only to say, you know what, I know it's going to be a party on Saturday, but I'm busy that day. That's how people are viewing it. I know there's a party. I got three other invitations that day. So I think I'm going to dispense with the cute little party and I'm going to go to this one. And that's how people sometimes view the gospel. It's an option among many. Oh, is it? No, it's a call from the God of heaven to repent and believe. In this case, come. Well, here they go. And if you take a look now, at verse 5, you see some, I called it one great party or great banquet, many lousy excuses. Here are some. Off they go. They pay no attention. Off they go, one to his farm, another to his business. They clearly have other things going on. Verse 6, then the rest seize those servants, treat them shamefully, and kill some 
Okay, now we're not playing anymore, are we? Wow. Not only, I don't want to hear your invitation, but you're going to die for having given it to me. I don't want to hear that command from heaven. In the context in which Jesus is speaking, I am confident that those who were hearing this were thinking of the prophets of old. Many of them had been stoned, mistreated, and killed. All the way down through John the Baptist. Verse 7, the king is angry, sends his troops, destroys those murderers, burns their city. Let me ask you, is the king right here to be angry? This judgment. Is he right? Or does he just fly off the handle? I tell you what, uh, among the subjects that don't preach very well in today's climate is judgment. We live in the day of the theological hug. We would like God just to hug everybody. You know, we all want to do what we want to do. And at the end of the day, have God just say, <laughs> oh, boys, 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 girls, oh, just come, just come for a hug. That's, that's kind of the God we want. C.S. Lewis would call that, you know, the, the grandfather in the sky is kind of what people seem to want. A grandfather in the sky that goes, oh, kids, <laughs> wow, what am I to do? This is not the God of the Bible. Not the God of the Bible. Powerless, old, gray beard. Seriously? No, you, you, you missed about, you know, 95% of the Bible. No, no. How, how right that the king would be angry. Were he not angry, he would not be a just king. He'd be an unjust king, unworthy of anybody following him. No, he's a just king. And so he exacts justice commensurate with the crime. The king is angry. He should be. Sends his troops and says, you, you, you can't do that. Judgment day is coming. Destroys those murders and burned their city. And of course, you know, in the context of the Bible, Jesus is speaking about to die on the cross 40 years later. You know what happens to Jerusalem, don't you? 40 years later, 70 AD, Titus, the general Titus, Roman, comes, besieges the city, breaches the walls. Terrible day of destruction. A generation later. Interesting. King is angry. He should be. He's right. Then, verse 8 and 9. Here, here's the call again. He says to his servants, the, the, the feast is ready. Those invited are not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads. Uh, I think uh, Luke, highways and byways. Invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. As many as you find. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Oh, thank you, Lord. That's, you invited us. You invited me. The wedding house is, is now, our wedding hall is filled with guests. And then this ex interesting little paragraph about the person who has come, but if you work at understanding what's going on, he's come on his own terms. Yes, I'll come to your invitation. I'll take your invitation, but I'll come, I'll come my way, thank you. The king, of course, inviting them to the banquet, uh, summoning them to come, provides wedding garments himself. That's the implication as you, you come, he's going to make sure that you're clothed appropriately. Here's a person who said, uh, no, I don't think so, thank you. What I have is good enough. If this isn't good enough for the party, I'm not coming. Or whatever he says. Uh, when he's confronted by the king, it says he's speechless. And this guy, wow, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that a good day or a bad day? Well, that's a very bad day. Which he should have seen coming and which he, listen, which he chose when he said, I'll do it my way. He chose it. 
when he saw the instructions, heard the commands, and said, no, thank you. That's what he signed up for. Okay, fine. You can have it your way. Wow. So what do you do with this then? Wedding garment declined. Now, if you look at the rest of the chapter, I'm going to move through these four rounds. And you might think, man, this is going to be a long time. Each one of these requires a sermon. Well, if you stay on track, not necessarily, but stay on track with the round one, round two, round three, because verse 15 then says the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So they're after him. This, this section, as those that follow, is about conflict. The Pharisees have heard what Jesus said. They not only heard this cool story, but they realized Jesus was talking about them. They were the ones. They were the ones who had been invited and had said no. They knew it. They knew Jesus was pointing at them. And they were not happy that day. So they're going to do what they can to get rid of him. They come a plot to entangle him in their words. And, of course, watch what happens here. They sent their disciples to him, the Pharisees did, along with the Herodians, saying, watch out for this, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you were not swayed by appearances. Tell us what you think. Okay, stop right there. (laughs) When anybody talks to you like that, you should run. Okay, they're laying it on extra thick. They don't believe a word of this. This is... Pure schmoozing. That's what that is. You are so wise and wonderful. We just have a little question to ask. They're coming for him. Gunning for him. Here's their question, verse 17. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They've brought a crowd, so they'll hear whatever he says. Establish it by two or three witnesses. Now, let's talk about the topic. Uh, Round one, what did I say here? It's not about taxes. It's not about taxes. As much as you say, come to this paragraph and say, well, let's talk here about uh, Christians interacting with government. You you could extrapolate a number of things from this, but I'm just here to say that's not the point of the paragraph. This is not about government. This is not about paying your taxes. It's not about the IRS. It's not about how you handle your money. It's not about any of that. It's not about taxes. The point of this paragraph is these guys are going after Jesus, and he outwits them. That's the point of the paragraph. Now, a few details about the taxes. Uh, They set this question up to get Jesus in trouble, and they figured they had him. They figured they had him one of two ways. If Jesus said, well, yes, you should pay your taxes, he was going to alienate the Jewish crowd who were incensed by these Roman invaders who came in and told them to pay taxes. Further, the, the denarius at the time was minted by Caesar, that would be Tiberius at the time, has the image and likeness of Tiberius on there. And the Jewish crowd, in keeping with the Ten Commandments, looked at that and said, that's a graven image. We're against that. And so they protested the very use of the coinage marked with Caesar. So they were already upset about it. That's the existence of the coin let alone that you're supposed to pay it to Caesar. They didn't like that much either. So if Jesus says you should pay your taxes, the Jewish crowd gets really mad. Well, if he says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, then he's in trouble with Rome and they can turn him in as an insurrectionist. So they think they have him, don't they? Jesus then, of course, says, "Um, why do you put me to the test? Show me the coin, show me a coin. Clearly he doesn't have one in his robe. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, who's, 
likeness and inscription is this. They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. You think they were impressed in a happy way? No, it says they marveled. They thought they had him. And he walked right out of their trap. Now, of course, as I have on your study sheet, speaking of taxes, uh, Jesus' response hinges on the the topic of likeness and image on a coin, in this case, Caesar's. But I I hope you don't miss the point. If, If the image on something marks its owner, God's image is seen where? In you, isn't it? Because the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that God made men and women in the image of God. Image bearers, both, marked with the image and likeness of their creator. And if that's the case, then one would think you belong to him, or you should. So if you're going to give to Caesar what Caesar's, then you give to God what is marked with him in his image, which is you. Well, something to think about round two then let's go to verse 23 the same day the pharisees are done same day the sadducees a different antagonistic group who say there's no resurrection they come and ask him a question saying teacher moses said if a man dies having no children his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother now there were seven brothers among us stop for a minute do you think there were seven brothers among them Well, my vote is no. We can't know for sure. Jay Monster says, I doubt it. I think you're making this whole thing up. It's not about marriage. You're making this up as a trap. Shame on you for even starting this. Jay's commentary. Now, there were seven brothers among us. I doubt it. The first married and died, then having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so the second, the third, and all the way down to the seventh. I don't know what's knocking these brothers off, but something terrible is happening. And after them all, the woman dies. No kidding. At the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? Okay. So are you puzzled by, by that question, too? A whole bunch of us are saying, seriously? Uh, that'll shake out in the resurrection. I don't know. I've never asked a question like, uh, I've never wondered about that in my life. Have you? <clears throat> Which, by the way, a lot of questions that people bring up aren't worth bringing up. Did you know that? This is not, no, this is not unusual. People bring questions often to the religious table that are not questions of the heart. There are questions intended to stir controversy. I have that on your sheet there. First Timothy 6.4. People who crave controversy, stir the pot, want to just kind of poke around at you, irritate you. Excuse me. Uh, those are the people who ask things like, no, seriously, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? <laughs> Thinking that this wise question will stump you and make you say, oh dear, I question my entire uh, frame of reference. Oh, stop. Right? What a dumb... Okay, can't say that to somebody. It's improper. Okay, well, I have opinions on that question, but people ask questions like that. Don't, it's really not a heart question. They say, well, by the way, and, uh, you know, I referenced um, first hour, a person you could pray for. Um, who knows? I don't know if he listens online, but there's a, there's a gentleman who's taken to calling the church often, um, trying to find somebody on staff who will talk to him. And his, he's really mainly trying to irritate anybody who answers the phone by asking innocuous questions and insulting everything holy. 
And he's really just trying to get a rise out of you. And he calls repeatedly. Right? The questions that he does raise if one of us talks, if, if one of us talks to him, uh, none of them are questions of the heart. There are things that are intended to just kind of, you know, kind of get you mad. Well, this is what's going on here, I believe. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, this whole question. How do, how do you know that? It isn't really, maybe this really was a question. I take it from verse 34, though, that that's really what's going on. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. So, now Jesus is going to answer. He's going to give them an answer. So here goes verse 29. Jesus answers them. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, that's the end of the answer on the marriage topic. Um, Do you understand what he just said? Well, I'm not really sure either. I've heard a a number of folks, uh, people who write books, who talk about this, who are very definitive. They know exactly. And I end up going, yeah, but I'm not sure you proved your point. Um, I think Jesus is saying two things. If I were to dice it, slice it up this way, I'd say verse 29, Jesus is saying, you're wrong. You're asking a question that isn't from the heart. You're really not wanting to know this. You don't know the Bible. You don't really know the power of God. Who can do what he'd like? So you're wrong right there. Oh, by the way, about the marriage thing, all he says is in, in, in the resurrection, it's not like here. There. Does that answer all your questions? I don't know that it does answer all your questions, no matter what anybody who writes books will tell you. I'm not sure it does answer all your questions. Clearly, uh, the way God has us relate in heaven is not the way he has us relate here. Like the angels, well, what does that mean? What, how do the angels relate? Well, I don't know. Well, then he says about resurrection. As for the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read? Every time he says that, it's, it's kind of a poke back. Haven't you read your Bibles? That's what he's saying. Haven't you read your Bibles? <laughs> Haven't you read what says what is said by God? I am the God of Abraham. It's focusing on present tense. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I am. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He didn't say I was the God of Abraham. He says I am. The idea, Abraham's doing just fine. He's right here with me. Here he is. He's doing just fine in my presence. And of course, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I suggest to you round two is not about marriage. Uh, That's not the main point. It's about people lining up to get Jesus in trouble. Round three, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, of course here this is an expert in Old Testament law, uh, not a lawyer as we think of one, asked the question, asked a question to test him, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Now, interestingly, in Mark's telling of this paragraph, this little conversation, he mentions that, uh, that, the, that the questioner affirms Jesus' answer And Jesus answers back, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So there's a commendation in Mark's gospel for the questioner, though not for the crowd who sends him. A couple of things now. I I, want to look at these two commands just with a few comments. I want to go to the second one first. You shall love your neighbor as you 
as, as yourself. Uh, this, listen carefully to me, please. This is a, I don't want to say a hobby horse of mine. It isn't a hobby horse. But it's something I feel very strongly about. Uh, this is a subject of a lot of nonsense, including in, in, in sermons and in books and in places where people should know better. Uh, this is not a command to love yourself. I don't care who preaches it or says that it is. This is not a command to love yourself. It is not, do you hear me? It's not a command to love yourself. Anybody says, well, apparently you have to love yourself first. Stop it already and read your Bible. No, this is not a command to love yourself. It's an acknowledgement that you already do. From the time you are born, you have been a lover of yourself. To, to a fault, you have loved yourself, and you still do. It's why you get so upset. Got, you were upset as a child when you didn't get food. Now, it's why you were yelling. It wasn't just, I'm uncomfortable. No, you were mad. No, you were. Ask your mama, right? You were mad because my needs, look, my needs are not being met. And you haven't changed much through the years. You've gotten maybe a little nicer about it. But you still get bugged when your needs are not met the way you think they should be. Spouses? Yeah, you know, that's true. That's the way it is. We do love ourselves. The Bible acknowledges that you do to a, to a fault. No command in the Bible to love yourself. None. The command is to love your neighbor the way you already do love yourself. That's the command. That's why it's kind of hard to do. If this was a command to love yourself, everybody would say, well, perfect. I obey that one completely. And you'd be right. You, you do. That's not the command. Uh, love your neighbor the way you the way you do the way you do love yourself you should love them that way okay back to the first love the lord your god now jesus is quoting here from the shema uh deuteronomy chapter six the shema that's a hebrew word from the first word of hear hear o israel the lord is our god the lord is one deuteronomy six four which is then followed by and you shall love the lord your god so he's quoting what every Jew in the crowd knew, Shema, hear, it's a command, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one, and, so he's quoting famous Old Testament text at this point, and he's saying, this is where it all starts, oh my goodness sakes, please get this, this is the point of the whole chapter, that's the hinge, that's the hinge of the whole chapter, what do I mean by that? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, in the parable What's the problem with those who didn't come? They had no love for the king, God in this case. What was missing? Love, true, true love of God. The Pharisees who were coming to test him. What's, they've got all the trappings of religions. What's missing? You shall love the Lord your God. They, they don't love the Lord their God. They love religion. They love their place in it. They don't love the Lord their God. They love all the trappings of it. They don't love God. What's the problem with the Sadducees asking these foolish questions to get him in trouble? What's their biggest miss? They don't love the Lord. You see my point here? The whole chapter is about this. It's an illustration of people who don't love God, and but they all kind of like to be all religious and close. And at the end of the parable, they miss. They miss out on, the, on this wonderful celebration. They love religion. They don't love the king. Jesus gets it right here. Some have said, well, these two commandments, if you just do those two, well, there's a certain sense in which I understand that. Um, one writer uh, says that these are the, most, the two most significant. Um, D.A. Carson takes that on and says, no, 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 that's not quite the right nuance. You don't want to say those are the most significant. But that's the platform on which all the rest is built, those two commands. Those two commands form, well, without those two, you cannot fulfill the rest of the commands. That's the idea. Carson would argue that strongly. The fourth, then, the fourth round. The fourth round. 
Jesus turns the table. He says, oh, you like questions and answers? Perfect, have I got one for you. It's about his own identity. He says, question, by the way, since you guys know so much about the Old Testament law, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And you say, well, son of David. Well, that's true. And he says, well, that's, that's, that's good. How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? That is, he calls his descendant. King David calls his descendant Lord. And he gives him an Old Testament quotation about this. How does David call his descendant Lord? And verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Who calls his descendant Lord? They had no idea how to answer him. And that was the end of the session. What's Jesus getting at? He's getting at his identity. Yes, son of David. But the only way he would be called Lord is if he is a greater son of David. It's a hint at his divinity. Not just son, son of man, but son of God as well. And they had no idea how to answer the question. What am I saying in all of this? Um, my goodness, interesting parable. I, yes, I give you some things here to think about in terms of the activities of your life that sometimes get so full that they crowd out what's truly important. Yes, yes, yes. But as I begin today, I, I mentioned to you, I, I get so concerned about my own heart first and then about others. Um, when the king speaks... Do I, as Isaiah the prophet says, chapter 66, verse 2, do I tremble at his word? And do I hear it and obey it and bow myself before the God spoken of here? Is that my heart? Or are God's commands and God's call on my life and yours, is it just another thing? Like a birthday party, a retirement party, another thing you do. Is that, is that it? God deliver us from just busyness in religion. And God keep us serious about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is that kind of a heart relationship with God for which Christ died so that you can come to him. 1 Corinthians 11 calls us to examine ourselves as we come to communion. And I would like to ask us to do that now. To examine our own selves. Lord, what's the state of my heart today in this most important of topics? The love, true love of the Lord my God. I'd like us to pray. It'd be a time of silence here. I'll close us in that prayer time in a moment. Those who will serve us can join me in the front at this time. But let's turn our thoughts then to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the call to examine ourselves in light of him. But let's bow together as we pray. Our Father, you are the one who alone sees what's going on inside of us. Uh, you see us better than we see ourselves. You know the truth more about us. We tend to shade the truth a bit about us sometimes. And you, you, you're able to cut it straight. You're able to see clearly. And our Father, if there are things that you want to talk to us about, even now as we focus on Jesus, uh, would you help us to listen? Remember the words of the Apostle Paul calling us to examine ourselves as we pause before the cross of Jesus, that we would not come flippantly, casually, and rush in and rush out in any other way, despise that for which Jesus died. Father, if there are things that are out of place in our lives, if we've allowed all kinds of activity to crowd out what is truly good, if the 
fire of love for God is burning pretty low in us today, would you just point that out and call us to you? Call us to repentance, faith. Father, thank you for these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, we invite all of you who know Jesus as your Savior to share with us in taking the bread and the cup. Um, A little piece of bread is a reminder to us of the body of Christ broken for us, and the cup points us to his blood shed in our place on the cross. As we serve communion here, the guys will come and distribute first the bread, and then they'll come to the front. If you hold on to that portion until everybody's been served, and then as a reminder of our unity in Christ, we'll take that together. We'll remember Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11 is a, not only an instruction from Paul about communion, what we call communion, it's also a rebuke. It's a, it's a reminder to a, a church there in Corinth that was so divided. Communion was anything but a time of unity. There were separations between people, and Paul calls it out and said, no, that's disregard for the one that you say you're remembering. Ought not to be so. And then he says, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A little piece of bread points us to the body of Christ. He bore our sin. Let's remember him together. Paul concludes his account of talking about the Lord's Supper by saying, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a look ahead, in a sense, to the great banquet, to the big wedding feast. If you know Christ is your Savior, I I hope you're looking forward to that day. It's going to be quite a wedding feast. It is. All in honor of the Son. If you don't know Christ yet, oh my goodness sakes, hear the invitation. Obey the command to repent and believe the gospel. Trust Christ as your Savior today. Do not fool around with that any longer. The call from heaven is clear. This little cup is a reminder of the blood of Jesus shed for us. We remember him. I would love for us to stand together as I pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the morning. Our minds and our hearts are stirred by the word of God. We hear the voice of the Spirit of God calling us through the Word of God to come, to come. Father, I pray as we walk into this week ahead that you would, you would keep us pointed toward Christ every single day. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you very soon.